0: Amen. Well, good morning. I want to echo the previous welcome and welcome you again to Bailey Baptist Church. I'm so thankful to be able to open God's Word with us this morning. I want to extend another congratulations to the graduates. So excited about your accomplishments. And um, just be praying for you, for whatever God has next for you in these coming days. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we're going to look at a a message I've titled, The New Birth. And we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 24, but what we're going to cover is is chapter 3, 1 through 15. And I know what you're thinking, couldn't he preach John 3, 16? Well, we will. We'll get to that at the end. That'll be our closing. But we're going to look at John chapter 2, and and before we dive in, while you're turning there, I just want to give a moment to kind of recapture where we are. We've been in a series these several months called The Movement of the Spirit of God. And we've been looking at how God's Spirit moves through the Old Testament. Last week, Patrick preached. And he preached through Nehemiah. It was a great message. And it showed us a number of things about God's people. What we saw was the deep love that the people of God in the book of Nehemiah had for God. They had a deep love. And they, they went through a remembrance through the scriptures of all that God had done for them. Led to a revival. And a renewal of their covenant with God. They renewed the covenant. But no sooner had they renewed it, what happened? They broke it. Almost immediately. And this is a problem that we see throughout Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, this is a problem of humanity. And this is the problem that Jesus came to remedy. The fact that we are all sinners. We're broken people. And as broken people, what do broken people do? We break things. We break relationships. We sin. We disobey. We break God's commands. We break his law. And we're rebellious by nature. And you see, in John 3, what we'll see is that Like good Israelites, like Nicodemus, they think they can make things right through the keeping of the law, through temple sacrifice. But what Jesus comes to show us is that there's nothing we can do, nothing we can do in and of ourselves to be made right with God, which is why we must be born again. The word born again can be easily translated born from above. That's the meaning here. It's a spiritual birth. It's a birth that only God can bring about. And so let's look at God's word here, starting in John chapter 2, verse 24. What happens, what we're told, through I'll just kind of recapture John 2 here. There was a wedding at Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. So there's these miracles, these signs John would tell us. It's an important word. If we were studying the gospel of John, we need to understand this connection between signs and faith. And then he cleansed the temple. He turned the tables over and cleansed the temple. And so what we're told in verse 23 is that there were many people who believed in his name because they saw the signs he was doing. Verse 24 says, But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I just want to pause for a second. What an amazing statement that is. These people believed in Jesus' name because they saw the signs, but what we're told here is Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because why? Because he knew what was in their heart. He saw the shallowness of their heart, of their belief, and he didn't entrust himself to them. He knows what's in us. You know, I often say the question throughout Scripture is not do you know Jesus, it's does he know you? Because he knows what's in your heart. And look at chapter 3, verse 1. Coming off this statement that Jesus knew what was in man, we read, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So let's look at this passage with the moments we have left, and let's look at what it means to be born again. This is a phrase that that we believe originated with Jesus right here in John 3. There's no, no known instance where this phrase was ever used before. To be born from above, to be born again. In our country, one of the ways this phrase, born again, gained prominence was decades ago in the public square, when Chuck Colson, facing prison time for his involvement in the Watergate scandal, was given a copy of a book. That book was called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, the same book that our graduates receive today. He read that book cover to cover and gave his life to Jesus Christ. Afterwards, he wrote a spiritual autobiography. Some of you all have it on your shelves today, simply titled, Born again. Around that same time, Jimmy Carter was running for president and was asked by reporters about his faith. He began to describe himself as a born-again Christian. And that phrase began to kind of ring out through our country. A born-again Christian. Which, if you think about it, it's kind of redundant. right? You can't be born again if you're not a Christian. It's like saying... He's a single bachelor. We get it. We know that. It's saying the same thing twice. But nevertheless, this phrase became popular in evangelical circles. And I want us to look right now at this passage. And I want to show us three things about this new birth. Three things. So here's the first point of this message we see the necessity of the new birth. The necessity of the new birth. And this necessity answers a question. It answers the what question. What is the new birth? What is the new birth? We'll look back again at chapter 3, verse 1. We know there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. and He was a ruler of the Jews. We'll talk about what that means in just a minute. And this man came to Jesus by night, and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs. You do, unless God's with him. And Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what do we know about Nicodemus? We know several things. We know he's a Pharisee, which already tells us that he's a member of, of, of probably the most influential group in Israel at this time. One of the most influential Jewish groups. They had a zeal for God, the Pharisees did. They had a zeal for Scripture. But in the 20 times that they're mentioned in the Gospel of John, they're almost always in opposition to Jesus. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council. It consisted of 71 members. Rome allowed the Sanhedrin to rule by law over Israel during this time. And to be on the Sanhedrin is equivalent to being in the executive or legislative or judicial branch of our government. It really was the top honor in Israel. And I don't want us to miss the significance of this moment, of who Jesus is talking to, because Nicodemus represents for us the best of the religious system, the best that society had to offer. He is well educated. He has all the degrees, all the accolades. He has his PhD. He's respected by all. Even Jesus refers to him in verse 10 as the teacher of Israel. Scholars believe this very well may have been a title that he carried. That people came from all over the land to have an opportunity to learn from Nicodemus in hope that they could sit, have permission to sit at his feet as one of his disciples. You see, if, if the law could ever save, I believe Nicodemus would have been saved. I mean, in all intents and purpose, he's a good man. But Jesus is telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Unless you're born again, you cannot see. And he would tell him, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. We need to understand this is a radical statement for Nicodemus to hear because he believed by being born a Jew that he would inherit God's kingdom by resurrection on that last day. It was part of his birthright. And I believe many today come to this scripture or come as Nicodemus does. He stands, in fact, as our representative in this conversation. He represents those who think that because they have a knowledge, a knowledge of the Bible, they have a knowledge about Jesus, Maybe they grew up in the church. Maybe they prayed a prayer, walked the aisle. Maybe they were baptized because they did these things. They think that they will enter the kingdom of God. One time I was asked, or I asked a young man to share with me when he became a Christian. I wanted to hear his testimony, and I'll never forget his reply. He said, Billy, he said, I've always been a Christian. I said, no, you haven't. You see, there has to be a time when you were dead in your sin, but you were made alive in Christ by the power of God. I want us to listen carefully, because what Jesus is telling us here, what he told Nicodemus, he's telling us the same thing, and it's this. Unless you are born again, you will not see or you will not enter the kingdom of God. What he's telling us is that we must be transformed by God's Spirit. And this is a transformation of our heart. Of our heart. This is the greatest need anyone has in life to know Christ, to be transformed, to be changed, to be born from above. Jesus makes that clear to you and I. And this brings us to our second point. We see the explanation of the new birth. The explanation of the new birth. And this point answers the why question why do we need to be born again? I think Paul gives us a great answer to that question in Ephesians 4.18. He says that our hearts are darkened and that we're alienated from God. This is why we need to be born again. Because we need new hearts. We need a heart that is altogether different than the heart that you currently have before Christ. You see, the heart that we have, by nature, can only produce more hearts like ours. We need a spiritual birth. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 6 when he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit of God is spirit. You see, the word flesh in John's gospel, it's not exactly the same meaning that we read Paul write about the word flesh. Paul often writes about flesh in terms of sinful nature. He would call it our old man. But when John writes about flesh, he's often writing about it in terms of the natural body, The natural man. You see, no one is born a Christian. All that your natural body has ever produced is flesh. And what Jesus is saying is that a person can only give birth to a person, but the Spirit, the Spirit of God, gives birth to the Spirit. And what we need is a spiritual birth, which only the Spirit of God can produce. If we look at verse 4, Nicodemus asks a couple questions. I'm not sure. The more I look at them, I'm not sure they were meant to be taken serious. It almost seems rather snarky. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Nicodemus knows the answer to this. What he's saying is this sounds like nonsense to him. You're only born once. You have one life. How can you be born a second time But in verse 5, Jesus gives him an answer. And it's a very similar answer to what he said in verse 3. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, putting verse 3 and 5 together, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Unless one is born from above, which is of water and of the Spirit, we cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. So what does that statement mean? What does that statement mean? This is where I believe Jesus is very lovingly pointing Nicodemus back to the Old Testament. He's pointing him to the scriptures. In fact, remember in verse 10, Jesus implies that Nicodemus should know exactly what he's talking about. It's as if Jesus is saying this. What do you mean, Nicodemus? What do you mean, how can this be? You're a Pharisee. You're the teacher of Israel. You should know what all the scriptures have said about this eschatological birth, about eternal life. It's what Joel 2 and Isaiah 32 have been saying. It's it's what Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37 shout about. That God is putting together a kingdom, and it is a kingdom of new people. It's not a kingdom of new rules, new systems, but a kingdom of new people with God's law written on their hearts. So look quickly with me at Ezekiel 36, because I believe... That when Jesus said, you must be born of water and of the Spirit, this is where he was reminding Nicodemus to go. And I'll summarize this, but you're welcome to look at it. In fact, in my Bible, I circled two words. They occur 16 times in this chapter. The two words are, I will. It's God speaking. And 16 times God says, I will. And this chapter is a great chapter where God speaks about the regeneration and the renewal that he will do for his people. Listen to some of the things that God says he will do. Remember where we're reading this. This is Ezekiel 36. God says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. All right, it's for his glory. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. That sounds like our verse. I will cleanse you from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, in my rules. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Sixteen times. Let me ask this question. Who is doing the work of cleansing? Who's doing the work of renewal in Ezekiel 36? God is. God is doing the work. You can't miss this, Nicodemus. This is the work of God. You can't be born again, but God will bring that new life to you, in you and through you. And Ezekiel 37 is really no different. In fact, its application is resurrection. Let me summarize it for us. Ezekiel preaches the dry bones, which sounds like a ridiculous thing to do except God told him to do it. Where there is absolutely no life in these dry bones, but God, at God's command, Ezekiel preaches the word of God, and we're told that the dry bones, that flesh, began to cover the dry bones. And then something even more radical happens as he's preaching. The breath of God came into them, and they lived. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, when the Spirit of God moves amongst its people, the Spirit often comes upon them. But right here, God is saying that the Spirit came into them and they lived. And what was 100% dead is now 100% alive. There's a great army that's resurrected here. And this point is given to us in chapter 37, verse 14. Listen to what God says. He says, And I will put my Spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Do you see what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here? He's telling Nicodemus what it means to be born again, to be born of water, to be born of spirit. He's telling Nicodemus that this is the work of God coming upon a life. This is supernatural, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's a thing God does to us and God does in us if we will believe in Jesus Christ. And it's not just the Old Testament where this washing and new birth is explained. In fact, it might best be explained in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Listen to what Paul tells us in Titus 3, 4 and 5. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, and don't miss this, by the washing of regeneration." And renewal of the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That being, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See the connection in all these verses. You See there was an expectation. For every good Jew, they expected personal and corporate renewal at the end of the age. And Jesus is saying that this renewal, not only can it happen, but it does happen now for every person that puts their faith in Jesus Christ. He says we're washed of our sins. We're given new life. We're given eternal life. And this brings us to our third point. We see the glory of this new birth. The glory of this new birth. Look quickly with me. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. It says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. see the glory of the new birth in these verses, and this answers the how question. How does Jesus bring about this new birth? Again, Jesus is pointing Nicodemus to the scriptures, isn't he? This time, it's Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Let me quickly summarize for us. This is when God had delivered the people from slavery in Egypt. And he provided for their needs supernaturally by providing manna from heaven for them to eat. And what started off as gratefulness quickly turned into complaints. They were ungrateful. They were tired of manna. They were tired of God's provision. And they complained against Moses. They complained against God. And they were rebellious in their hearts. God responded to their rebellion, we're told, by sending a plague of venomous snakes on the people. Their venom was said to be like fire. And these snakes bit people, and many died. I just want to pause and say this. I don't know if anybody in here is a snake person. And if you are, don't tell me. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'd rather that part stay out of our relationship. Because to me, this is the stuff of nightmares. Reminds me of, of Indiana Jones. I don't know if anybody remembers that movie. He's sitting over the pit of snakes. What's the question he asked? Why did it have to be snakes? I feel you, Dr. Jones. But God sends judgment on the people. And like all judgment God sends on Israel, there's a purpose behind it, isn't there? What's the purpose? It's to bring them to Repentance. So bring them to repentance and and restore them to a right relationship with God. You see, God is about saving people through judgment. God is glorified in that. The glory of God in salvation through judgment. And in here, he wants to save his people through this judgment he sent. And for us, he wants to save us through the judgment of our sins that's placed upon Jesus Christ on the cross. And so God gives Moses instruction for a remedy, and here's the instructions. He tells him, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it up. And everyone that's bitten, if they look at the bronze serpent that's lifted up on the pole, they will live. But if they don't look, all they have to do is look. If they don't look upon the bronze serpent, then they would die. You see, there's a remedy that God gives for their judgment. That remedy, that cure was 100% successful for anyone who would look upon the bronze serpent that was lifted up. But it's implied in the text that not everyone lived. So for the people that died, what did they fail to do? They failed to look. They failed to look. And this is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Look upon the salvation that God is providing. And I really believe, I don't think Nicodemus got it here, but I think he gets it. You know, we see Nicodemus three times in in the Gospel of John. We see him here in chapter 3. We'll see him again in chapter 7 as he's arguing with the Sanhedrin, really kind of giving a defense. We see his heart moving towards Christ. But then we'll see him again in in John 19 after the crucifixion where he goes with Joseph of Arimathea, and they ask they go before Rome boldly, To ask for Jesus' body, and he has spices for burial. And I believe when he saw Jesus on the cross, he was reminded here of chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, that the Son of Man must be lifted up to save God's people. I believe this is what he saw. And this leads so beautifully into John chapter 3, verse 16. John 3.16 is the most famous verse in all the Bible. I remember growing up as a kid, you don't see it much anymore, but you watch a football game, and it would be almost automatic. In the, in the end zone, you'd see a sign with John 3.16 on it. People love this verse, and I love it. I love the way the, the International Standard Version translates this verse. I want to read it in the ISV, and the reason why I do, it kind of helps explain the meaning behind the word begotten word we don't use much in our vocabulary, but here's how it reads. It says, This is how God loved the world. He gave his unique Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. While this verse is deeply loved, I also think sometimes it's misunderstood. It was D.A. Carson that pointed that out. That we mostly come to this verse when we see the word world, we think of it in terms of how big the world is. When we say God loves the world, we say God loves the world. God. Some people say God loves everybody. And I think it's important for us to understand in John that the world to John is not so much a, a big place or a good place as it is a bad place. I mean, just read 1 John chapter 2. Read 1 John chapter 5, and you'll see what John tells us about the world, that we are to overcome the world that we're not to have the love of the world in our hearts. And so what John is telling us in John three sixteen is this, that God loves us when we were bad, when we were rebelling against him, when we were dead in our sins. That's when God loves you. That's when God moves towards you. That's when God sent the Son. You see, he loves us because God is God. It's who he is. And the salvation that God brings us is for his glory. It's for his name. And this is radical. It's radical for us. That John's telling us, he isn't telling us that God just loves the good moral people, but that he loves the world. And that he sent his son to die for us that we might be forgiven. Now what are we to do about it? What does John 3.16 tell us that we should do in response to God's love? It says we believe. Right? We believe in Jesus who was exalted. We believe in Jesus who was lifted up on the cross to pay the penalty that we owe for our sins. You see, he paid the penalty. He paid our debt. He paid what we earned. We earned death, and he paid it all. Romans 6.23 is that great verse. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. I love what Adrian Rogers said in talking about John three. He puts it very simply, he says, if we're born twice, we'll die once. But if we're born once, we'll die twice. Second time, be in the lake of fire. Born twice, die once born once died twice. I want to close with a testimony. It's a testimony that I'm involved in. It's not my testimony, it's my dad's. And this week at studying John 3 it really was pressed on my heart especially in looking at verse 8 talking about the wind because this testimony is about a hurricane. 2004, Hurricane Ivan smashed into Pensacola, Florida where we lived. My dad and I boarded up the windows to his house and we decided we'd ride out the storm in the house, but send Sonia and my mom and the kids inland to Dunedin, Florida to be with my uncle. I'll never forget that night as the hurricane came ashore. It pounded the house. sounded The wind sounded like a freight train running around the house. Blew out the windows of my truck. I remember looking at the garage door and it was just flexing in and out, moving about that much. Front door flexing in and out throughout the night. I realize why they make doors out of metal now. All right, The pressure was heavy. The wind was heavy. What I saw that night was the power of the wind as trees laid scattered. And that's what the wind does, doesn't it? What The wind displaces the atmosphere. When the wind comes, it just pushes out whatever is in front of it. I think that's the image God's telling us that the work of the Spirit does in our lives. When he enters our life, he pushes out the old but we saw the power of the wind that night, but I not only saw that, I saw the power of God. The power of God's Spirit. You see, I was a believer, but my dad wasn't at the time. Now, he went to church, he professed faith in Christ, but there was no fruit in his life. And Jesus tells us that we will know each other by our fruit. It's the evidence of our salvation. Spiritual fruit. And so, that night... While we were huddled, at one point, we got into the bathroom. We wedged a mattress in the bathroom and got under it. That's what they told us we're supposed to do. Never made sense to me how that was going to keep us safe from the roof falling on us, but at least we'd be cushy. We were under that mattress, and I just remember pouring my heart out to my dad. I remember telling him he needs to be born again. He needs to trust Christ. I remember just saying, Dad, if you'll just give your life to Christ, he'll change everything. My dad wanted to fix some things first. He said, you know, Billy, let me fix these things. These, these, we call them vices. He said, if I can fix these, then I'll be right with God. I can give my life to Christ. I said, no, you won't. I said, you got to give your life to Christ first. He'll fix them. I hope you all understand that. So anyone in here, has, it feels like that they've got to get their life straight first. No, you don't. You just come to Jesus. Well, that night, he gave his life to Christ. And his life changed. He repented. He believed in Jesus. I saw the power of God in salvation that night. You see, his, his values changed. His character changed. But you know the most important thing that changed was his heart. His heart changed. And that's the same thing that happened to you if you're a Christian. Right? If you're a Christian, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes into your life and he transforms your life from the inside out. You don't have to clean up the outside. We don't do these things and then come to Christ. You come to Jesus as you are, and let him change your life. experience this new birth. This is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. And so I want to ask us one more time in closing. I want to ask this question that's been with us all morning. The question is this. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, or look, the new has come. We're going to sing a song of invitation now. Kyle, you go ahead. Y'all come up and get ready. I want to lead us in a prayer before we sing this song. This prayer is, is, is the type of prayer you'd pray when you come to faith in Christ. I don't know if anybody in here is in that place. God's tugging on their heart. But if you've already come to Christ, I just want you to rejoice as I pray this prayer. Rejoice in the work that he's done in your life, hopefully many years ago, maybe just this past week. But if you don't know Christ, if you say, Billy, I don't know that I've had that second birth. Billy, I don't want to die twice. Then you pray this prayer, and God will change your life. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. And pray something along the lines of this. Lord, Father, I confess you today that I'm a sinner. That I have lived for myself. And it's been in rebellion against you. Lord, I'm deeply sorry about that. And I see through your word that you love me and that Jesus died for me. And I see here in John 3 that the spirit alone gives us new birth. Please forgive me. Forgive my rebellion. Forgive my sin. And please change me by this new birth so that I will now love your ways for the rest of my life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.